Now, if you're physically able, would you stand for the reading of God's word out of respect for its inspiration and its authority? Paul writing his introduction to the Corinthian church in verse two and three. Paul says, to the church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be holy, together with all those everywhere who call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is God's word for you today. May it remind you yet again of God's salvation, of his forgiveness, that you today have been sanctified, made holy, washed clean by the love of our God. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. So Christmas in a pastor's family can sometimes be a little different because uh, I have to work on Christmas Eve. But for years, when our kids were little, we would get up first thing on Christmas morning and catch the first flight out so we could be with family in Dallas and grandparents and cousins. And it still had a little bit of a, a Christmas morning kind of feel. So when we were living in, in Fort Myers, we got up, we went to the airport. And uh, if you've ever flown on Christmas Day, it really is great because there's not nearly as many people there. It's not that crowded. There's space on the planes. And oh, by the way, everybody seems to be in a really good mood. You know, it's very celebratory. So we get to the airport in Fort Myers and my boys had kind of fallen in love with Starbucks Frappuccinos. So, okay. So we go to Starbucks, we get our coffee drinks, we get on the plane, plane takes off, lovely flight, two and a half hours. We get to Dallas, pilot comes on. We're beginning our initial descent into Dallas. And as we're going down, we kind of hit some turbulence. Now, we weren't bouncing all over the sky. I would not, I've been in a way worse, but I look over at my son, Alex, and he is, as I'm sure you've seen some people before, he looks green. He is, I mean, so nauseated. And he goes, dad, I'm gonna be sick. And I said, Alex, no, you're not. <clears throat> so I get the barf bag, I get that in front of him. I get the stewardess to get me a wet paper towel. I'm rubbing his back. I'm coaching him up and he hates throwing up. So he's, he's doing his best to hold it down. So we get all the way, we land. Now we just got to get off the plane. I'm like, please don't vomit in the aisle. That would be even worse. So I, I you know, let's just get off the plane. Then we find the bathroom. And so he does, we get off the plane and sure enough, we look up and there's a men's room right in front of us. So I grab his arm and we take off running for the men's room. And sure enough, we get there and we come into the middle of the men's room and there's a, an airport worker standing with his mop like this. And he's got that yellow bucket with the wheels, you know, that's right there. And then he's got this sign, little sandwich board signs that say, you know, slippery when wet, caution. So clearly he has just finished cleaning this bathroom. And Alex, bless his heart, blows Frappuccino all over that bathroom. I mean, it's, it's everywhere, everywhere. And he did the best he could. And so I'm worried about Alex. So I get the wet paper towels. I clean him up. And then finally I look around and that worker has not moved. <laughs> and he's got a look on his face that seems to say, really? on Christmas morning, you're really going to do this to me. And the, the problem was, 
I'm sitting there and I thought, I could go get some paper towels and maybe move some of it around. But like, I don't have the tools. I don't have the disinfectant. Like, I don't have the capacity to put this bathroom back into its newly cleaned form. And so I grabbed Alex's arm and I went, and, and we walked out. I still feel terribly guilty about this. I left that guy with that mess on Christmas morning. But, but here's the thing, the more I thought about it, that actually maybe not in that severity, but it really wasn't that unusual for him because that was his job. All, all day, every day, he was going from room to room at the airport and he was cleaning up messes that other people had made. And this is actually, if you think about it, this is kind of how all of our lives work, right? I mean, last Sunday, I mean, last Saturday, I do what I often do. I'll go out and work out Sunday, uh, Saturday morning kind of early and then come back, I make myself a big breakfast. I do eggs, I get the, the griddle out with the bacon and the whole grease catcher thing and all that. And we cut up some fruit. I got pans out and it smells and there's stuff everywhere. And I have a phenomenal breakfast. And then of course, after I eat it, you go back to bed, right? It's time to re-rack, right? You get back in the bed. I sleep for an hour and a half. And then when I get back up, we have a kitchen fairy at our house. Do y'all have a kitchen fairy? Yeah, I get up and the kitchen is clean. It is amazing, right? And the kitchen fairy's name is Lee, right? Lee has cleaned up more of my messes than I can possibly count. Same thing actually happened right here in the sanctuary on Christmas Eve. All y'all came to church, you, you know, got up and had your candles, all that, and you left. And then I'm kind of getting ready to go home. I come right through here and there are probably 10 or 12 staff people going pew by pew, picking up your trash that you left behind and then trying to get the coffee stains and the wax out of our brand new carpet that you dripped on it. So apparently... God-fearing, Bible-believing Christians still make messes that need to be cleaned up, which is exactly why the church continues to matter so much today. We've talked now for weeks about the beautiful bride. And in this new post-pandemic world, why, why is the church so important why would we continue to commit ourselves? We, we talked about the church as the one place where you can go to learn the truth of God in a world of falsehood. We talked about the significance of worship, that you don't just have a, a seat in, in a sanctuary. You actually have a seat in heaven with all the angels and saints. And we worship God. And we reorient our lives away from the things of the world. And we point ourselves once again to God. And we talked about the fact that we come into the church we're all part of a common story, that we all have the same past and that in the church, you can't put on airs here. You can't act like you're superior because, oh, by the way, you're not. The ground at the foot of the cross is level. We were all dead in our transgressions and Jesus Christ came to redeem and save, it, save us and that's every single person's story. And not only that, but then last week, Dr. Thorpe talked about the nature of of the church's family, that we're brothers and sisters together, that we have unique relationship and all those things are great. And it kind of makes you say, yeah, I want to be committed to the life of the church. But then today we get to some tougher ground. 
Because today is when we talk about the fact that the church is imperfect. She's perfectly imperfect, but she's filled with broken, messy, flawed people like me and like all of you. And when things get messy and broken, it's the church that God calls to engage in that with us and for us. And that's what Paul's doing as he writes this letter. First Corinthians, he's already gotten a letter from the Christians in Corinth going, we're in trouble. There are hard things happening here. Corinth was this wildly affluent, very worldly uh, kind of city. And it was pulling at the fabric of the church, mainly in two areas, materialism and sexual immorality. So it kind of reminds me of the world we live in today, huh? And so Paul's addressing that, but it's kind of the age-old question, right? How do, we, how do we live in the world, but not be of it? How do we live in a culture that is increasingly hostile to the word of God, to the truths of scripture, to the values of the church, while at the same time maintaining a winsome and an attractive witness that makes the church a place that people would want to go and visit? How do we maintain relationships in the midst of all that? And so Paul starts to address the Corinthian church about just those things. And he says, stand fast, greetings. You know, I'm Paul, I'm the guy who was there to set it up to begin with. But here's some things I want you to remember about life together, about what it is to be the church. Number one, you have to understand that the church was created. The divinely created bride of Christ was set apart by God for the purpose of her holiness so that she would be a reflection of the presence of God in her. So God creates the bride of Christ in order that you and I would be holy and different from the rest of the world. Just listen to verse two. It is absolutely packed with truth. He says, to the church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus. What does sanctified mean? It means to set apart and make them holy. So he says, I'm writing to the sanctified in Christ Jesus, the people that are being made holy in Christ and called to be holy together with all those other people that believe in Jesus everywhere. So when he says the word called to be holy, that's often translated as saints. And I'll come back to that in a minute. But he says, those who are sanctified, those who are set apart, to be made holy, those who are saints, or what that literally means is the called holy ones of the Lord. So there's this call for us to be holy, but honestly, I'm not, I'm not totally sure we think about that very often. That to me seems to be one of those overlooked truths of God's call in our lives that he calls us to personal holiness. But people, that's always been God's purpose. That's always been what he did in scripture. He called Israel first, and he said, I'm going to call a nation for myself, and I'm going to set them apart. In that sense, he sanctified Israel and made them different because he gave them a set of laws and behaviors. And if you'll simply live according to me, I'll be present with you in the tabernacle and the holy of holies and all the other nations of the world will eventually come to worship me because they'll see that I am the one true and living God. And then what happens when Jesus comes? He does the same thing. The church as Israel was set apart now, the church of Jesus Christ post-Pentecost 
The spirit comes and the church is set apart for holy living, to be the earthly presence of the existence of God living within each one of us and inside the church. Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, he said, I'm inaugurating this new kingdom and it's gonna be upside down. It's not gonna look anything like Christians. The people who follow me aren't gonna live anything like the people who live in the kingdom of the world. Megan Hill writes, like the church at Corinth, our local church, First Pres Orlando, may be plagued with faults and weaknesses, and Lord knows we are, but it's not defined by them because our salvation compels us to live out our new identity in Christ. When we come to a deep and meaningful conversion in Christ, and we realize that God has changed and transformed our life, we're compelled. The Spirit moves us. As we talked about last week and the week before, moves us to live out of that salvation, to become sanctified more and more like Jesus. Now here's your big, this is a 15, this is not even a $10 word. This is a $15 word today, you ready? You're gonna impress your friends later. It's called the Ordo Salutis. It's Latin for the order of salvation. So when God saves us, what is the sequence of events by which that happens? The order of salvation, the Ordo Salutis. I'm not gonna go through all 12 of them. I'm gonna give you just the last three, okay? You eventually become justified. At the moment of your conversion where you accept and express your faith in God, that by the death of Christ on the cross, that you trust and believe that he will save you from your sins, God justifies you. In other words, he makes you innocent. Why? Not because of your merit, not because of your works, but the righteousness of Christ at the moment of your conversion gets imputed to you. So when God looks at you, he doesn't see your works and your merit. He sees the work of Jesus. He sees the merit of Jesus, the innocence of Jesus. So he looks at you and declares you're just, you're innocent. And in that moment, you're assured of your salvation and your eternity. Then at the end of it is your glorification. You die, you leave your earthly life and you go to the glory of heaven. You're living in the presence of God. But in between those two things is your sanctification because you've now been set apart and brought in to the bride of Christ, his church, for the purpose of being made holy. So let me ask you about that. Does your heart beat there? Do you have a hunger to be more like Jesus? When, when you pray, do you say to the Lord, would you just let me be formed today? so that I can just be a little bit more like you? Or do you find yourself kind of content with where you are, knowing, number one, that you're saved, but otherwise you'd just rather be left well enough alone? I kind of got what I need. I mean, honestly, as you look at your life right now, are you more like Jesus today than you were a year ago at this time? Or less? And why? Why do we not hunger more? See, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3.18, he says, here's the trajectory of a Christian life. We all with unveiled faces, beholding the glory of the Lord, now we know God, are being transformed into the same image. What is that image? The image of Jesus. So when we come to see the Lord, he's changing us and we're being made into the same image, the image of Christ. How? from one degree of glory to another. So gradually, it happens step by step by step, one degree to another. 
you should become more and more like Christ. Why? Because this has been God's command since the beginning. Leviticus, Exodus, 1 Thessalonians, 1 Peter, God says four different times, be holy because I am holy. We should be holy if the presence of the holy God of the universe lives in us. It should move our hearts in that direction. So when we hear that today, when we hear that that's God's desire for us is our personal holiness, how do we feel about that? If you're like me, the answer is lousy. I feel terrible about that. Why? Because I know good and well I can't be. Because I know I'm somebody who's possessed of a sinful nature and I fight it every day, but I don't always win. And see, here's the beauty of what Paul says. He says, I'm writing to those of you who have been sanctified and set apart to be holy. I'm writing to the holy ones or the saints is the word that he uses. That word is actually used in 60 different places, 60 in the New Testament. And you know what? It's always used in the plural. It's always used in the plural. You're never a saint because you're never going to be made holy by yourself. You can only be made holy as you are with your brothers and sisters in the body. And and you know this is true, right? When When I'm in the church and I'm with somebody like Brett Allen, our minister of family life, when I'm around Brett, I just want to know God more intimately and more deeply because he knows God in that way. When I'm in the world, I just want to know what the world has to offer me. When I'm around Taylor Boutel in the church, she makes me want to be more kind and more humble and more gracious because that's just who she is. But when I'm in the world, I tend to want to be more divisive and I tend to want to be more hateful. It just kind of pushes you that way. When I'm in the church and I'm around Emily Gaskins, one of our our fellows, she just makes me want to love other people so much more deeply and especially people who don't know the Lord. She has this infectious zeal about her for people who are lost. And it makes me want to go find those that don't know the Lord either. But when I'm in the world, I don't care about who doesn't know Jesus. I just care about me. Because that's how it trains me. When I'm around Steve Cahill, Steve makes me want to be more generous because he's one of the most generous people I know. But when I'm in the world, I just have been trained to think about all the things I don't have, not what I do have. And so I keep wanting to add to the things I think are gonna make me feel better. I'm not generous. You see what happens? When you're you're in the church, you're made whole, you're sanctified. Because when we're together, we sharpen each other and we influence each other. But then, even as that's happening, the reality, as I said, is we can try, but we're gonna fail. And our lives are sometimes going to deteriorate into broken pieces and wounded hearts. But that's why Paul says in verse three, for the next 16 chapters, Paul chastens the Corinthian church in a pretty serious way. But before he gets into any of those things, he says, grace and peace to you the sanctified ones, the saints 
who when you're together, you're being made holy. But all of this is said to you according to the grace of God. It's always going to be about grace. Megan Hill says it uh, perhaps more beautifully than I can. She said, our neighbors, our coworkers, our fellow students and friends often have little concern with whether we sin. And sometimes they even lay little snares that entangle us. Only in the church do we find fellow saints who value our holiness enough to call us back when we wander. No, no one's gonna care whether you follow Jesus out in the world. No one's gonna care if you trip and fall. Certainly no one's gonna come down and help get you up. In fact, they kind of like it when you walk farther away from Jesus. But James in chapter five says, blessed is the one who goes and gets the person that wanders. Because in the end, what they've done is they've saved that person's life. So what does that mean for us practically? I think from a practical standpoint, it means at the very least, we don't laud or approve or affirm disobedient, ungodly behavior. So if you got a friend of yours and you guys went out last night and that guy got blackout drunk, you don't call him up the next day and go, wow, last night was so awesome. Right, or if you find someone who's chosen to live apart from the truth of God's word, you don't, you don't say, way to go, way to live your truth. That just pushes them farther into the darkness. Paul said in Romans 1.25, they're gonna exchange the truth of God for a lie. If you affirm ungodly behavior, they're gonna start believing even more deeply what they've started to believe that, oh, this lie is actually true. And if you affirm it, then they're gonna go, wow, it really is true, it's okay. But it means that you in all humility, when someone wanders off, are gonna be the kind of people who go get others and who bring them back with all the emotional and spiritual risk involved. And sometimes when we're the one who wanders and it has been me before and someone comes to get you, will you humble yourself and receive it? as godly, God-ordained rebuke that you need to come back home. But people, at the end of the day, we all know one thing. In the church is where we're sanctified, where we're made more like Jesus, but ultimately no one can do that for us but Christ himself. When I was in the bathroom that day at DFW Airport, there was only one guy in the bathroom who had the power to make it clean. And that's true in our lives. Jesus Christ is the only one who can take away your stain, every blemish of your life, and take what has been made crimson and make it white as snow. And we tend to carry around with us all the broken, shattered pieces. But people, it's in the church. It's in the community of faith where you'll find men and women who will get down on their knees and they'll pick up the pieces with you and they'll put salve on the wounds of your heart and they'll remind you, as we will in just a moment, they'll remind you that in Christ, you've been redeemed. In Christ, you've been washed clean. In Christ, you've been made whole. And sometimes we just need to remember. And we remember that 
in the church when we're with one another. So in a few moments, I'm gonna invite you to come forward and you don't have to do this. This is only if you want to. And so when it's time for your row, if you would choose not to come for any reason, just stand in your place, let others get past and they'll come back. You'll come through the center aisle, go back to your seat um, through the side aisles. There'll be uh, four stations up front. So if you see uh, that there's nobody at the far station, go on ahead and go past the near one, go to that one. And then uh, we'll start on the front row and work back. And then if you're in the back row, you'll go to the stations that are in the narthex. So the back row will go out first, the ushers will dismiss you and you'll go out into the narthex and then come back. And so we'll kind of work our way um, to the middle. And so let me uh, invite you now, let's pray together as we prepare to renew and remember our baptism. Father, I thank you that in a world in which we clearly understand that your call to us is holiness, that we might be those who reflect your presence in us and by it might reflect winsome witness to the world. But Father, when we trip and fall and when things break and when wounds open, I thank you that the church is there, that you are a God of grace that helps pick up the pieces. Remind us yet again that you've forgiven us by the waters of our baptism, that you've made us whole once more. Remind us of that this morning, Lord. Renew us in our baptism, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.